If a farmer is planting corn, the corn that he or she plants, if the person does it year after year after year, eventually becomes a lot more corn than was planted. This is the source of growth and wealth and maintenance for a farmer. If the farmer says, I am concerned that I might have a windstorm, I might have a bad year, the price of corn might fall, there's so many risks in having corn in the ground. I'll just keep it in the silo. Well, if you've ever been on a farm or had anything to do with this, you realize that corn gradually deteriorates in the silo. In the bottom, you get dust, uh, which isn't useful for anything other than spreading on the ground, maybe as poor fertilizer. So you've, you've, you've got a position of saying, I'm concerned that I'm going to lose my wealth because the market's going down in bad times. I want to move to cash. Bad move. Once the corn's in the ground, it's a really bad idea to try to dig it up and put it back in the silo. It's just it's muddy and, uh, and it's, harder, it's really hard to yeah. plant that stock again after you've pulled it up yeah. out of the ground. Yeah. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill up the wall with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. McClure. Uh, we, we are here to uh, befuddle, bemuse, say our names, possibly um, confuse, uh, hopefully enlighten in, in the process of confusing, bemuddling, confusing. Uh, right. Did exactly. I say that twice? Was I repetitive yes. and redundant? It could be. Mm. But you do such a good job of it. Thank you. Thank you. See what I did there with that? Right. Repetitively, redundantly. Yes. It's quite nice. This is the yes. Personal Wealth Coach. We are here to talk about finance, uh, economy stuff, uh, how you should look at the world to make better decisions about your money. Uh, but before we begin... We have to In tell you getting. all of the things that are required to be told. We must not open. We are going to disclose, which is like not close, but not open. Otherwise, it would just be open. But we're right. going to disclose. Nope. So the Personal Wealth Coach is the name of this radio program. It's also the name of a podcast. It's also, not coincidentally, the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. What does that mean? Well, the firm, who we two bald guys in here happen to be principals at that firm, it gives fiduciary advice to individuals and foundations and trusts and corporations and all that stuff. And fiduciary, what does that mean? In the best interest of the person getting the advice. Uh, it is sculptured and tailored advice to people. But we can't do that on the radio. Because we can't individually sculpt and um, customize our advice to each of you listening, even though there may only be one of you out there, uh, because we well, don't know which one it is. We don't know if anybody's listening. Uh, what did you say? I wasn't paying attention. I'm got it. Sorry. Got it. Uh, yeah, you. yeah, right. yeah. So um, what that means is that we can't give advice, investment advice on the air, but we can give education on the air, and that's what we intend to do. Uh, and as a side note to that, I just dropped the name of a U.S. government organization with some thump. major clout. Did you hear thump? thump? Yeah, I heard it thump. Yeah, when you dropped the name. I dropped the name of the SEC. 
um, because they want us to tell you that we're registered with them. But they also want us to tell you that they don't approve anything that we do. They don't give us any form of pats on the heads or kudos or thumbs up or anything like that because they're a government agency. They didn't tell me to say it the way I say it. I just like saying it this way because they tell us that we must say we're registered with the SEC, but the SEC does not approve anything we say, which is really boring. Um, they don't approve anything. Anybody does. They just don't disapprove. That's, that's really what... That, Sometimes. When, when you file with them, it's not an approval process. It's a, we didn't disapprove you. So it's very much not like these disclosures are not open. They are disclosed. It's just... Yeah. Just got to get that right. That, that's when we're extra professional. We use a word that no one else uses for the thing that we're doing consistently. Yes, and we can't give investment advice because this is an educational program. And because it's an educational program, we have to say this. And this is the only really weird disclosure stuff that we use. And I like to use this word. The information presented on this program in this educational program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable. But we make no warranty or guarantee as the accuracy or completeness of said information. I love saying that. I, I just give a very clear guarantee that we do not guarantee. I guarantee that we do not guarantee the completeness of unsaid information. Mm -hmm. well, the future is always uncertain. Yes, it's just not what it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> we don't pay for the radio yeah, this program. Is, that's the last one. We don't pay for the radio program and we don't get paid for the radio program. But... Uh, we do advertise on the radio station. channel station for the radio program. Yes. Yeah. As well, the studio also advertises on their own station for the radio program. So you know, we, it's a, it's a really, joint advertisement. We really dwell on these disclosures a lot. We do. All right. So we have a lot to talk about still. A lot is going on out there in the world. Well, you mentioned China and said we could spend an hour on that. Um, that we could spend a lot more than an hour on that. China's in the middle of something bad. Um, that's with two syllables. Uh, when you use a three-letter word and it has two syllables in it, you know it's really bad. Um, bad. Bad. Uh, China's in, in the pits. They have locked down huge portions of their economy. Um, they're it's massive, the amount that's been locked down. Uh, there's delays in shipping inside China, not just to the rest of the world, but the delays inside China, supply chain issues inside China are four to five weeks at this point. These are the delays in getting parts from one location to the other. So even if tomorrow or Monday um, they decide to completely switch how they're doing their COVID procedures and say, open everything up, everything's good. It's going to take a while for them to ramp back up. If their parts are taking five weeks to arrive from within China and they need those parts to make the next layer of parts that need to go to other places, that's going to put a big delay on them starting back up. This is a big deal. And you mentioned this. I agreed last hour that uh, China came out and said that they had growth and they were doing great uh, in the first quarter. And you and I both look at the numbers and we don't see the growth. Uh, when I dig into the numbers, when I'm looking at, just, just to be very, very clear here, the vast amount 
a, a vast amount, maybe not the majority, but a vast amount of the wealth that is the GDP of China comes from foreign investment and foreign purchasing and foreign ownership. So uh, the GDP of China is drastically increased by all of the foreign manufacturing facilities that are there. We're building stuff there. Their workers are getting paid. Their real estate prices go up because we're buying factory floors out there and the rest of the building too. I don't know why people always talk about the floor like that's the only important part. But yes, so that we've got more than floors in these factories. There's a lot of equipment there and it's purchased from other Chinese companies. So there's a lot of foreign investment as an input into the GDP of China. But there's a lot of consumerism there too. They have actually paid attention to us and realized that that's a safer form of economics and they've been trying to focus on that. But they are still largely focused on exports or manufacturing for foreign facilities. Say that 10 times fast. Uh, so that leaves them in a place now with this lockdown going where... I've said this repeatedly for a year and a half. Nobody's talking about making a new manufacturing facility in China right now in the United States. We're not saying, hey, let's, let's, let's expand our manufacturing capabilities in China. It's just not happening. In fact, the headlines on the uh, areas that, that I'm following, here's one. Moving your manufacturing out of China? Choose a friend. Um, how to handle your China workforce during COVID-19. These are the things that are in the, uh, the, the rags, if you will, for industry. And it, the same places were saying the opposite of this four years ago. How to, how to su set up a, a location in China? Choose a friend. It's the same friend, by the way, but now they're like, whoa, we got to get out of here. Uh, the They've just passed a new law on the internet, on how the internet is, is being done, that limits legal advice in China through the internet, which is how most of the industrial manufacturers, foreign paid for, that's how most of it occurs. So it's making it so that if you want to have legal advice in China, it's always a good idea to have someone local there that has legal advice. But if you're an international business, it touches other things. They're limiting the international reach on how to get advice to do things, which is just compounding the fact. Again and again, China is in a downward uh, move as far as its economy goes. And you said this several months ago that we've seen the peak growth of China already. They've made some changes here that are permanent or semi-permanent. They I mean, if, if Xi Jinping were to disappear tomorrow and somebody else replaced them, they may be able to grow back up to what they were. But there's a lot of reputation that's been lost. Started with the trade war and the really nasty bitterness and the, the polit politicization of trade. And then it's gone more as more and more draconian efforts to to force out the international community. It's not good for China, and China is the second largest economy on the planet. And we still buy a lot of stuff from them. And this is part of the reason why the prices are up on the things that you're buying is because there's fewer of them. We, we have to wait a long time to get a bunch of stuff from China right now. 
This is good for a lot of other places. It's good for the United States. It's good for Vietnam. It's good for Thailand. It's good for Mexico. It's good for other manufacturing enterprising countries throughout the planet. But we still have to get weaned off of China. And that's going to be painful. It's going to take a while. Yeah. And I can change the subject a little bit. Another question from John about behavioral investing. Uh, um, some of us know something a little bit about that. Yeah, we do. But he has, an, he has a very good question. In times of bad news, a lot of people add to their cash positions. Yeah, that's kind of an understatement. Pundits say due to inflation, you lose value in holding cash. Cash allows some people to sleep better at night despite the value loss. What's one to do? And the answer is yes. Yes. So um, it's very normal for people to go to cash in the times of high inflation, which is part of the reason why we have high inflation. It's just fun. It's, it's important to recognize what you want. If you want long-term growth in investment, then you leave the investment long-term for growth. It is an analogy that I have uh, said over and over and over and over and over again. And, and I think it's a good one. To, it's overly simplistic, but it's a good analogy. If a farmer is planting corn, the corn that he or she plants, if the person does it year after year after year, eventually becomes a lot more corn than was planted. This is the source of growth and wealth and maintenance for a farmer. If the farmer says, I am concerned that I might have a windstorm, I might have a bad year, the price of corn might fall. There's so many risks in having corn in the ground. I'll just keep it in the silo. Well, if you've ever been on a farm or had anything to do with it, you realize that corn gradually deteriorates in the silo. In the bottom, you get dust, uh, which isn't useful for anything other than spreading on the ground, maybe as poor fertilizer, because gradually that corn will deteriorate in that silo. So you've, you've, you've got a position of saying, I'm concerned that I'm going to lose my wealth because the market's going down in bad times. I want to move to cash. Bad move. Once the corn's in the ground. It's a really bad idea to try to dig it up and put it back in the silo. It's just it's muddy it, and, uh, and it's rotten. harder. It's really hard to yeah. plant that stock again after you've pulled it up yeah. out of the ground. Yeah. So the issue is have enough cash on hand to carry you through a downturn, a historic downturn, either wherever you have it, have it available to you, but leave long-term investments for the long-term. If, if you don't do that, you lose. Now, if you say, I can't stand to see the value of my investment portfolio decline, you shouldn't be in investments to begin with. You should be, you put all your money in the banking, recognize the fact right now, year over year, we had eight and a half percent inflation and you did not get eight and a half percent in the bank, which meant you lost seven. You, you basically, if you had your money in the bank, you basically lost eight and a half percent in the last 12 years, last 12 months. If you're comfortable doing that, that's fine. Um, if you're comfortable with the fact that you don't want to see market fluctuations and so you don't care that the value of the money that you have in the bank is declining pretty fast at this point, cool. If you want to have money to live for the long term and you want to take the kind of standard 4% out of your portfolio each year and adjust it for inflation when you need to down in the future, you have to accept the fact that the markets go up and down. And if you can't do that, then don't expect your money to grow. It's, it's one of those immutable laws. There is no safe place to get a high return. There is no place you can put money and not see the value fluctuate and still get a high return better than inflation. That is an immutable rule. And when somebody offers you a higher interest rate than inflation, but then says there will be no fluctuations in the value, 
read the fine print because they're either lying or they're mistaken and they're somebody lied to them. The reality is to see long-term growth of your money, you must be willing to see value fluctuations. And if you don't want to see value fluctuations, then expect to slowly lose your money over time. It's, it's, it is a, that's one of those immutable laws of finance. Now, if you get enough money that you can live off of the interest that the bank pays you, you still have danger and that the bank only has insurance up to $250,000. Risk is real. You do what you can to mitigate risk. And then the next layer is that you are aware of the risk and you, and you live with it. When you get into a car to go to work, there's risk. There is no way to get quickly to work <laughs> without a danger of driving quickly. There's no way of getting quickly anywhere without some danger a, a part of it. So we're not talking about extreme risk right now. I mean, that would be putting all your money into cryptocurrencies. Uh, and man, the hacking on that is just right off the charts at the moment. The Russians are doing it. The North Koreans are doing it. And there's a lot of other people doing it as well. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of cryptocurrency assets have been hacked in the last two weeks. Um, just lots and lots and lots of it. It's just the normal state of affairs during wartime in Europe. So risk is everywhere. I mean, you get up in the morning and there's risk. You do what you can to mitigate it. You, and then when we're talking about the marketplace, this is just pure, purely educational. Don't be focused in one stock or even one asset class. Be spread out, be diversified. This is immutable as well. If you need to have more growth than the bank will give you, then you should recognize the risks that you can mitigate. Number one, being diversified. That is huge. Um, what does that mean? Some people still ask me that. If you own one circular saw and you are a home builder, you might want to get a few more because one of them will break at some point. One of them will have issues. So you may need to have more than one tool that does the same job. That's diversification. Now, it's not as simple as owning one tool. <laughs> you still have to load your truck with multiple tools that you're not going to use today because you're probably only going to want use one circular saw today. But having that other one or a spare tire these are how we've mitigated risk throughout humanity. In the, when the wheel was first discovered, they had spare tires in the trunk. No, sorry, I'm mixing metaphors again. Uh, you have a backup. That's how humans deal with risk. That's what diversification is. And if they're all focused in the same direction, it benefits you in other ways as well. Yeah, the Romans invented spare tires. Yes, yes, they did. They had a standardized, they did something really weird as far as, Anybody that I know of has been able to research. The Romans are the first people to do it. They had standardized wheels on their chariots and wagons so that if you could carry a spare supply of wheels so that if a wheel broke, you didn't have to fix the wheel at the spot. You could just change out the wheel. Right. And that was a brilliant, one of the reasons that they kept winning. Yeah. that The logistics aspect, and this is also, I've mentioned this on the air before, but it's worth checking out. The distance apart for our railroad tracks in the United States, it's based on the distance apart of the cartwheels of the Roman legions. Why? Because the first steam engines were made in Europe and they laid the tracks 
in the ruts, in the road, the old Roman roads, because they were really well made. So you could put a lot of weight on top of them without building up what we do today with railroad tracks. So they laid the tracks in the ruts and they realized that they had already had a standard width. So many of the early American steam engines were made in Britain and shipped. So the standard wheel width and the standard distance between tracks was made by some logistical sergeant major or something centurion back to 2000 plus years ago when they were trying to replace wheels on a cart. The origin of that, oddly enough, is the fact that the Romans demanded standardized horses. Yeah. Because they used two horses to pull chariots, for example. Um, and the two horses had to be the same size, otherwise it doesn't work well. And the standardized axle, so if you break an axle, we could, they could replace it with another axle rather than building one on the spot, uh, was the distance between the midlines and the tails of those two standardized horses. So um, basically, the American railroad system is based on the distance between the uh, buttholes of two Roman standardized horses. That's that's a lovely terminology. I just think that <laughs> you've done. <laughs> I messed up people's minds for the day. Thank you so much for that. Um, we, hey, let we, me- we've gained so much. I mean, at least economists are known for what they spew and we're, we're doing it directly. You got it. Hey, I wanted to say something else. And we mentioned this in the newsletter, but it's important in the midst of all this news about inflation, which by the way, may have peaked this month or next month. Uh, it was we'll peaking at us or down. come to the top? Come to the top. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Wall Street Journal, I couldn't find even carried an article about this, but I think it's very, very important. The conference board, yeah, which, which is a non-governmental organization that comes out with a very, very, very reliable set of numbers each uh, month, released its leading economic index this week, and it reported the index had risen 0.3%. Well, that doesn't sound too impressive. It was up 0.6% last month, and it was up 1.9% over the trailing six months, which is really important. The six-month number is really important. We have not, since the conference has been doing this for about 40 or 50 years, we have never had a recession that was not preceded by the leading economic index falling for a succession of at least three months. And the, the leading economic index is up. Yes. And that means that there is no recession on the horizon. Now, uh, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan both separately came out with estimates of a 35% probability of a uh, recession in the next two years, meaning 2023. They also both came out separately, which was kind of embarrassing to them, I'm sure. And Moody's came out with the same thing. If we do have a recession in 2023, it will probably be a mild recession and relatively short. And I happen to agree with that, too. So there's a great deal of fear in the market right now. And that, that is a key thing to focus on. There's a great deal of fear in the market media, the media about the economy and the market, a great deal of negativity. We see that kind, the level of negativity and fear that we're seeing in the media right now, typically at the bottom of a bear market. What we have seen, and this has been consistent through the major market crashes and recessions that we've seen 
at least in the 40 years I've been doing this and the 10 years before that I was observing and it was an investor. So over the last 50 years, it's been pretty clear. Before a major market downturn, there is tremendous enthusiasm and optimism and a lot of indications that people believe we're in a booming economy that will never cease to boom, that all things are good and no bad thing can happen. We're sure seeing the opposite of that right now. So all the indicators... Yeah, all the headlines are talking about how bad things are and how it's going to get worse when all of the good indicators are showing their bright colors saying things are going to look better in the future. This is all indicative of good things for us. And and it's keep your mind focused on this, that it is the reliable indicators to pay attention to, not the headlines. Um, yeah, there's a war going on in Europe and it's terrible. And I think Zelensky, President Zelensky of Ukraine is undoubtedly correct. By the way, he was supported inadvertently by a a uh, Russian general who acknowledged that the purpose is to secure a land bridge through Mariupol down. And then there's a couple of other countries they want to go ahead and take over yeah, after they get done. Transnistria has been sitting there as kind of a Russian state for a long time. So let's just take that too. And Moldova, you know, you called us to your ambassador, your ambassador wanted to talk to us, but we think you might be a good Russian fit. Yeah. So this is going to, this is, in my opinion, going to go on for quite a while. We're going to have a war in Eastern Europe for some time. It has the potential to boil over into something much bigger. We're going to have supply constraints out of China that could get a lot worse before they get any better. Uh, these are all things that we are aware of and are going on, and they're all negatives. But underneath it, it's in, we mentioned this last hour, but it's it's really important to understand the Federal Reserve's got its work cut out for it to slow down the economy. Uh, the reason is, but we mentioned this last hour, but it is it is one of those. Footmarks and economic footnotes in economic history that's pretty critical. American households are holding more cash than they have debt. This is the first time since such records have been kept that we've seen that. There, there's just a tremendous cash reserve built up in American households right now, which is why short-term interest rates are so low because there's so much cash out there. The economy is not about to fall on its face. Um, the everything, every single indicator that I know of. Uh, including my personal experimentation in the economy this last couple of days, uh, went out and tried to eat a dinner at a restaurant and went tried to go to a movie last night, and we couldn't get in. We've been going to movies in Central Texas for a long time, and normally, prior to the pandemic even, there was never a shortage of seats at movies because people were watching more and more and more from home. We tried to go to two different movies last night, and they literally weren't any seats left did somebody is, take all the seats they did were you, all full of people oh you, you so you, did you sit on the floor no, no. we didn't go to the movie we oh went home. man uh but that's the first time in many 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 years that we've seen this happen and and as as it goes here in my experience so it goes in the rest of the country and we're charging along and, and the economy is extra, exceptionally healthy right now uh you said it earlier Interest rates are still below neutral. The The interest rate environment that we have out there right now, despite the fact it's rising, is still stimulating the economy. Uh, and it's going to be a while before that turns around. Maybe by the end of the year, it'll turn around. But we still have a tremendous booming economy. And that's, yeah. I, wanna, I think it's good. Yeah, I want to hit a couple of things. Um, uh, Zillow is looking ahead and seeing the growth in housing prices slowing down. 
Now, if you look at the graph that's appeared everywhere, this is just, just goes hand in glove with what you were just saying about um, the concepts of what's going on in the world. Um, everything's bad. Um, the headlines all look like, like home prices are about to drop, when, according to Zillow. But that's not what Zillow said. It said that it's going to be slowing its growth in value. And that's a pretty reasonable statement. We're still really, really short on houses out there. There's fewer houses than people that want to buy them. People aren't selling. They're living in their house because there's nothing to move to at this point. So it's putting a, 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 a price point that's getting higher and higher until we get enough houses built. And on top of that, we've got interest rates going up. Freddie Mac just came out this week. Last week, we were talking about breaching the 5% mark. It's now up to 5.11. So th this kind of a rise in uh, interest rates for mortgages, by the way, we have not seen this amount of rise in this short a period of time since 1982. When now the the amount to, that it rose was a lot more back then, but this this is a good statement of the interest rates are being ratcheted up for a reason. It's to make sure that we don't have inflation in the housing market and everywhere else into the future, and just expect that to continue as the Federal Reserve continues to raise the rates at the short term. Interest rates are going to be going up in the long term as well. The longer term ones are like the thirty year mortgages, the 15-year mortgages. By the way, those are at about 4.4%, the 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, which, if you just go back to a year ago, um, a 15-year was 2.4, not 4.4. The 30-year was a 3%, and now it's 5.1. So just laying that out there, we have seen a massive rise in interest rates in a very short period of time starting at the end of last year. And so just expect if you're in the housing market, you're going to have to pay some more for a while. You can be patient. That's very hard to do when you're looking for a house. But if you can be patient, as we've said over the past several months, there are new housing projects underway that amount to more building than we've done in a decade for the next year. That is going to impact the market. There are going to be prices coming down in parts of, of the United States. And as that building boom continues, at some point, we're going to see the other side of a housing boom. There always is one. When you have a housing boom, there's a housing bust that follows. We're in a housing boom. I don't think anybody could argue with that. Are we in a bubble? Not yet. Uh, there's there's just not enough houses out there. But eventually there will be because the market is demanding it. Therefore, people will make the houses. Uh, this is, uh, I love this example. Um, there was a TV series on the Discovery Channel called Gold Rush. And I loved it from an economics perspective. Wasn't a big fan of the program itself. I mean, it was kind of entertaining. But the concept of the program is such a true point for the economy. It's basically a plumber and some construction guys and a guy that was an accountant. All of them quit their jobs, bought over a year or so a bunch of equipment and shipped it out to Alaska to start 
a gold operation. None of them, except for an old man in the group, had any experience with mining whatsoever. Zero. The old man had, in his younger days, worked for a couple of places for a couple of years, and, and that was their expert in gold. So this group spent a lot of money. They went to, to Alaska. They had a very entertaining first season of trying to find gold and eventually finding some gold. By year two, they were profitable. If a bunch of amateurs can get into a complicated industry and be profitable in year two, that's a bubble. And sure enough, about three and a half, four years into the, the series, the gold market tanked because the fact that they were making a series about it and that amateurs from all over the place were getting into it and making a profit, that's not sustainable. Why is it not sustainable? Give you a quick example. In a housing boom back 2007, uh, a doctor and an, and an attorney couple, sounds like the beginning of a joke, buy a house. They have zero expertise in home construction at all. They go through the house and they make some changes to color of paint and they replace some carpet and they sell the house a month later for an $80,000 profit. That's not sustainable because they didn't add any value. The only reason why the value was added to the building or to, is because more people wanted to buy it at that point. And eventually, the people that were paying the 80000 plus extra dollars for a house wound up with four houses that they weren't living in. And then we had a housing bust. We're nowhere near that yet. <laughs> but it's coming. At some point, it will happen because this is the way our cycles work. Builders build. That's what they do. They don't stop building when house prices start falling because they, this is what they do for a living. So they can they will just have to build more houses. If housing prices are dropping, we'll just have to build more houses. Well, that causes housing prices to drop more. And this is a normal cycle. We are now at a point, we're not quite to the top of the, of the housing boom. We've probably got several more years of it. And in some places, the, maybe more than that. But it's coming. Uh, interest rates are going to be a part of this. The prices are, I mean, we're pricing new homeowners out. And man, I've seen a lot of articles on that. Corporations coming in and buying up these residences at, at much higher prices than a first-time home buyer could afford so that they could rent them out. Well, this is a normal part of every single housing boom that's ever existed is that at some point it becomes a great investment opportunity to rent to people because there's enough, there's not enough houses to go around so you can raise the rent. And that's what's happening. So you can look back at 2004 and 2005 to articles and, and headlines in the Wall Street Journal, and you see them saying the same thing, only instead of the talking about millennials but first-time home buyers. They're talking about Generation X, first-time home buyers. It's just the generation that's changed. We have a memory in the internet. We can go back and read the stuff that was going on. Just expect the frenzy to really kind of kick in in the next year or so where people are buying more than they should in the home market. And this kind of goes to another answer to John's question or to Justin's question about where's the money going? It's leaving the stock market. It's leaving the bond market. Where, where is it going? Well, look at the houses. <laughs> People are buying houses and they're expensive. So some of it's going there too. Okay. 
So that was my long-winded uh, answer to no one's question on what's happening in the housing market. I got another interesting, totally different subject that's in, that is still underlying things. Another one no one's asking questions about though, right? No one's asking questions about it. Okay, know. good, good. A quarter, the, this is, uh, let's see, Wall Street Journal. No, it's Bloomberg. Most U.S. college grads don't work in the field they studied. And yep. a quarter of the graduates, college graduates over the age of 25, make less than $35,000 a year, despite the fact that they have a college education. On the other side of that, college-educated people with hard degrees, degrees that actually teach them something that's useful in the economy, are doing significantly better than the median. This is a key thing if you have any influence on who goes to college and whether or not they borrow money to do it. Just going to college and getting a bachelor's degree does not guarantee anybody anything except if they borrowed the money, a lot of debt. The key thing is, does your degree, does the degree that the person is paying for or is borrowing money for or whatever somebody is paying for, give them a skill that they can use in the economy to make a good living? If not, it's wasted money. And that's it in a nutshell. I think a lot of people don't understand that. I think a lot of people um, go to college, borrow the money to go to college, wind up with a degree that has no economic value, and then wonder why they spend many, many years crying in their beer, metaphorically, paying off the debt. It's it, Shoot, I have a degree. My bachelor's degree is in cultural anthropology. That and a couple of dollars will get you a cup of coffee in some restaurants. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what restaurant would only charge you a couple of dollars at this point. Some restaurants, right. This is the, this is the point, though. I, my intent was to get a commission in the United States Army, and all that the United States Army required was me to get a degree in something. It didn't make any difference what I got a degree in. So I just kind of drifted through college and got my commission and went on about my business. So my degree was valuable in that it enabled me to take a job in something I wanted to do, which was as an officer in the United States Army. Well, you got to keep your eye on that particular ball. You got to, if you're going to, because otherwise, now, I suppose if you're a very wealthy family and you're paying for it with cash and your kids want to go to school and learn advanced basket weaving, and I use that metaphorically, I know that advanced basket weaving is a viable it's actually quite Occupation. profitable, yes. It is, um, a, but it's an analogy from your youth where nobody right. could make money. I know people making very large six-figure incomes off of basket weaving. But what you don't see very many people making large six-figure incomes off of is a bachelor's degree in marine biology. No, you're correct. And, or in and literature. The, right. And are in many cases in music or things like that. They're wonderful things to study and it's beautiful and it makes for a well-rounded person and how very nice, but it's really hard to get a job with that kind of degree. Uh, there's some people who get jobs and they do reasonably well, but this is the interesting point. About a third of college bachelor's degree holding people are making less money than the median person who does not, who just has a high school education. So it's one of those things to, to keep all right. One of the reasons college educations are so expensive right now is everybody's trying to get one. It's the, it's the law of supply and demand. And you can borrow money. Uh, the government will basically loan you as much money as you need to get a college education. And right now, the president is looking really hard at whose loans to forgive. 
um, because it is a weight on our society. It is a weight on many families that they have um, large student loans that are draining their income out back into the system, and they're not making they're not making the additional money that that bachelor's degree they thought was going to give them, or maybe didn't think. So we previous generations have made a lot of mistakes in that area, and it's a good idea to keep our eyes open and not and 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 counsel people not to make those same mistakes. Um, some of the best bang for the buck right now, by the way, for many people is a technical education, uh, learning how to learning a skill in maintaining equipment or installing equipment or a whole series of other things, things like IT maintenance, uh, where there's a demand, and it's it's an important, very practical bit of advice. To people who are about to embark on an educational uh, endeavor to try to move themselves forward is to first figure out what you're going to do with that education and how you're going to pay back the loans if you make loans and is it going to give you enough advantage. It's not as much fun to get a hard education, a difficult education, um, and, and learn how to do something that will pay you as well. But if you have less fun in college and then go on to have a more pleasant life, I think that's a good investment. I agree. And, and I, we could down the downturn and the pandemic when everybody was getting laid off. The people who were relatively immune to that were college educated, even if they didn't do what they went to college for. So that's mm -hmm. it, it, there's a lot of value to it. And I think a lot of people recognize that value during the pandemic. So everybody decided to go get a degree at the same time the prices went up. So there was a little sweet spot right in the middle of 2020 and 2021 where going to college actually cost less money than it had the year before. It is the only blip in that graph of a downward trend in tuition costs for the last 40 years. So it's not normal. Uh, prices for colleges are likely to continue to increase because while it's nice that we have the internet, we're not doing as much online learning and that which we're doing tends to be just as expensive. The specifics on that, uh, if you have a degree in business engineering, biomedical science and computer science, then there's a pretty good probability that the graduate is earning more than $90,000 a year. However, there's a pretty good chance that if your degree is in social science, communication, education, and art, you're learning, earning less than $45,000 a year. There's a huge difference there. Oh, we're out of time. You and this is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we are also uh, SEC Registered Investment Advisors. We manage portfolios for people who are independently wealthy generally. And you can contact us off the air. We have voicemail on the weekends, live people during the week at 254-947-1111 or toll-free 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to the webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. Sign up for our newsletter there. Contact us through the contact form. Our radio programs are listed there going back lots of time. We've got podcasts out there. Until next week, this has been the Personal Wealth Coach.